you, John. My name is Josh. I get the pleasure of teaching today. Um, I had a good time in the first service. Hopefully this will be the same. Uh, this is a fun passage. And the story that's been rattling around in my head as I've been preparing this is a story about my mom. Any protective moms in the room? Yeah, you don't mess with the mom's kids. So my mom is both protective and crazy. And you combine those and you get some good stories. Me and my sister, the best thing about family gatherings now is we just reminisce about all the great stories of us growing up. The top of the protective mom story list is this. My, I was at baseball practice, my mom and sister, my sister was probably eight at the time, I guess. Uh, and we had a carport and then a front door, obviously. My mom, they were gonna leave somewhere. My mom went out the front door and my sister went in the carport to get in the car. And she yelled, Mom, there's someone in the car who shouldn't be there. Mom ran into the garage, the carport area, grabbed this young guy out of the car, threw him down, laced him with a few explicitives and a nice little colorful language. You get out of here, you bleep and bleep, 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 bleep. And this young guy took off. And she says, oh no. She turned on the car, got in reverse, and chased him down the street, driving through the yards, trying to run this man over. <laughs> till he finally jumped a fence and got free from my mother. Now, here's what no one in this room would say. You know, I think your mom needs to go to a, a crazy place. <laughs> All you moms are saying. That's how you handle that situation. You run his butt over. That's exactly how you handle that situation. Because here's what we all know intuitively. Good moms protect their kids. Good husbands protect their wives. Good big brothers, good big sisters protect their siblings. Love included in that is protection and the church is no different and what we're looking at in this book of Titus is healthy church life so if we're going to be a healthy church we need protection so just to catch you up the first week Luke talked about what health looked like in the life of a Christian here's the slide he shared faith plus knowledge of truth plus godliness equals healthy Christian the word in this uh, book that we see a lot is sound Sound is the same word, hygiene, health. We want healthy Christians. Last week, Luke preached on elders. How do you get healthy Christians? You put healthy leaders over a local church and they lead the ship towards health. And then immediately after he talks about elders, he jumps into this topic right here. Part of being an elder, one of the primary tasks of being an elder, a leader, a person in love shepherding over others is this idea of protection. So that's what we're looking at today. What's the church's role in the area of protection? It is to protect their people so their people come out healthy. You get in the car and you run over those people you need to run over. <laughs> that's loving. That's not crazy. That's the way it should be. The church is no different. Now, today is going to be, just so you know my prayer through it all, I pray that we all walk out of here a little challenged, maybe just a little rattled, but we walk out of here wanting to share more love, more truth, more grace because we live in a complicated society this isn't easy to navigate this is a difficult passage it was for the Cretans for Paul for Titus and it's difficult for us to apply ourselves so with that being said let's pray for a second before we dive in God you're the great protector uh, you love us and you want to protect us this passage is a picture of that help us to be hit where we need to be hit with the words today from your scripture Allow us to be a church that's full of truth, yet full of grace and growing in both, God. Be with us today. It's in Christ's name we pray. So here's how we're going to tackle this. Four questions. Who are the dangerous teachers of this text? Why are they so dangerous? 
What were the elders supposed to do with them? And then lastly, we're going to land and spend a good chunk of time on who are the dangerous influences and teachers of our day. So four questions, and we'll be on our merry way. So here's the first question. Who are the dangerous teachers for these churches? Specifically, who is Paul talking to Titus about? So we're going to read through a couple verses. I'm going to read 10, 12, 14, 16, and give you an overview of who Paul's talking about. So go to verse 10 again. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Verse 12, jump down. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Let's read through verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. And here's the, the dangerous part. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Jump down to verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So what do we see? There are many. Are there many bad influences today? Absolutely. It's been that way forever. This island here has many bad influences. Many men and women who should never have a platform into people's lives. Many. Who are what? Insubordinate is the first descriptor. Meaning they stand under no authority. They don't stand under the authority of scripture. They don't stand under the authority of an elder board. They don't stand under the authority of anything. They are their own captains. And they're going to go spew their nonsense on people. They are insubordinate. Empty talkers. What's an empty talker? It's a babbler. That literally means it's a babbler. Talking with nothing to say. There's no substance to what they're saying. You have no authority and what you're saying is babble. You're just babbling. It may sound good and enticing, but it is babble. And finally, they are deceivers. Not they speak and occasionally a lie comes out. Underlying their whole presentation, the whole of what they do is deception. These are the people that are influencing this young church. Titus is a young leader. He needs to set up protection because this is the influence that's going to get in his church. Titus, get in the car and run these guys over. Now, Here's one thing I just want to clear up on the front end. So many people, especially in good Bible teaching churches, are quick to throw people in the false teacher category. They say one thing that doesn't line up in your brain of yours, false teacher. So I just want to give two definitions so we start off on the same page. The first one is of a teacher. I'm a teacher, Luke's a teacher, Matthew's a teacher. Teachers teach false things sometimes. We just make mistakes. You know what the biggest critique I have when I'm teaching? I mean, men will sprint from that corner of the room over here, jump over chairs if I quote their favorite movie wrong. <laughs> you said William Wallace's friend was this. His name is Amish. Get it right. I teach wrong stuff that's trivial, like movie stuff. My wife's birthday, occasionally I've gotten wrong. And even theologically, sometimes I land on the wrong thing that I should have landed on. I know that might be a little unsettling, but there's a lot of stuff in here that you just have to make a judgment call and say, here's kind of three options. I choose option B. When I meet Jesus in heaven, he's going to say, you got it wrong, but let's go party. We teach false things sometimes. What's a false teacher though? Teach from false foundations. That's far different. My foundation is correct because it's the scripture. I've got elders over me. 
I'm in a church with a community here to correct me and rebuke me. My foundation is true. So just to give us some handles to grab onto so we have an idea, what are some of these false foundations that underpin and undermine and are the assumptions that false teachers bring into the equation? So false teachers, they have a few things. Here's one of the options. The wrong story. Meaning fundamentally, how they describe the universe and its story is wrong. Two of the smartest math, science brains in the world, Richard Dawkins and Hawking's, both get it wrong. Both remove God from the equation and try to answer everything with quantum physics and all this other stuff, which is all good and right. But the answer lies outside of the created order. They are fundamentally wrong. Most Eastern religions get it fundamentally wrong. And they have kind of a cyclical reincarnation. It's all just, we're kind of swirling together, trying to reach whatever it is we're trying to reach. Where the Bible says we're in a story. There was a chapter one and a chapter two. And there's a last chapter in the Bible which kicks off the new creation. So their stories are wrong. False teachers. They have the wrong salvation. You and God are on the, not on the same page. There's something separating you. False teachers fill in that gap with wrong stuff. Usually some combination of works and be betterisms. That's wrong. Wrong sin. God describes how humanity should function. We call it love. You could call it boundaries. He's created the boundaries where humanity is going to be best. And some people find themselves outside of those boundaries. And instead of repenting and getting back in, they say, I'll just redefine how God sees sin to include how I want to live. I want to be able to end any pregnancy I can end. So I'm going to call it freedom in church and make it sound really appealing. It's outside of the boundaries God has set up. You redefine sin. And the last one is this. Wrong Savior. The God in this system of thought for whatever false teacher is just wrong. He could be completely wrong. He could have the same name. They could call him Jesus. But if you look at his attributes, look at his story, look at everything, it's wrong. Those are false teachers. And those are the ones that Paul's talking about. When their assumptions about the world and God and sin are fundamentally off. Now, specifically in this passage, what do we see? I think we see two types of dangerous teachers. So look at verse 12 for me. It says this, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. How's that for a description? That's the general culture of what's going on. So you're in this place and the general waters that everybody's swimming in is lazy, gluttonous. A word we use in the church world is licentiousness, do whatever you want. And their fundamental approach to life is wrong. In our context, it's postmodernism. You believe that, 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 you believe that. All your truths are equally valid. We're all good. Let's not really get into details. Let's just try to get along by not talking about it. That's the general water we swim in. Now, what about the religious wrong teaching? If that's the irreligious tone of the day, what's the religious? You see it there at the end of verse 13. He says, verse 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths in the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Up on top, it said the circumcision party. Terrible party. 
Who's the circumcision party? It's a sect of Jewish trying to be Christian people who have decided that the way to get to God, the way to be pure in God's eye, the way to be justified, whatever, is to take Jewish tradition and elevate it above the grace offered in Jesus. So they specifically would say, you can't be totally pure until you ceremonially eat this way or ceremonially wash your hands this way or avoid pork. They were adding all these rules. It was Jesus plus fill in the blank with whatever your moralism was. Both are bad. Today we see it, it's way more subtle. It's Christianity and then parenting God's way. This is the way you do it. And if you don't do it this specific way, you're outside the bounds of scripture. It just narrows God's grace to this few commands of men on how you're supposed to live your life and that's not the gospel of Jesus. Now here's the question. Paul wrote a lot of the Bible. This is gonna last forever. Why would he put these, what the young people used to say, why did he put them on blast? Why did he call them out like this? He could have just, eh, it, it'll, it'll flush away. It, it'll. He called them out because it's dangerous. Plain and simple, this is dangerous. So the second question we have is, why are these teachers so dangerous? So go to verse 11 and we'll see what Paul's answer is. Verse 11, he tells them, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. That word upsetting is overturning, overthrowing, kind of pulling the rug from underneath. These families were functioning in a Christian environment where the gospel is upheld. These teachers come in and everything's off now. They've shaken their foundation. Some of you know what that's like. You grew up in very religious, strict, moral codes. And it's a burden and it shakes you. And they're coming into a gospel area that has the grace of Jesus. And now they're adding, oh, but you also have to blank, blank, blank. And they're upsetting families. How does bad teaching hurt us? I was listening to an interview, Ra Ravi, Ravi Zacharias. Yes, that's how you say it. Anybody know who that is? He's a apologetics guy, super smart. Travels the globe and talks about Jesus in very diverse cultures. And he just spoke at Passion, which is in Georgia every year. College kids go there, like 50,000 college age kids go there every year to gather and to get pumped up for Jesus sort of thing. And he just spoke there. And in this interview, he said, you want to know the top two issues I was pressed with while with these young people? Any ideas? Top one was pornography, which makes sense in my head. And the second one was suicide. That's sad. But then he made this point, which was just genius. Where does that come from, he said. He said, because we live in a culture, the, the, the air we breathe, the water we swim in is a culture that has dehumanized everyone. So pornography is the dehumanizing of another person. It's no longer that girl is made in the image of God. That is my sex toy, whatever that means, to be disposed of when I'm done. That's teaching of the culture influencing. And what's suicide? He said, that's the dehumanizing of the human soul of your own self. You're no longer made in the image of God, created by a God who loves you. You're just some blob in this black, dark space where we remove God. Bad teaching hurts people. 
older folks in the room, like 60 and above, think back to your 14-year-old days. Were those two things on your mind? No. Those weren't the pressing issues of the day. Why? Because teaching has changed. Culture has changed. The influence on us has changed, and it's dangerous. Paul says, silence them within the church. You don't let that teaching influence your young people. Now, besides just the cultural, what about the religious teaching? This is a very interesting verse. Go to verse 15. How does bad religious teaching hurt us? Verse 15 says this. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So the circumcision party, the, the Jewish sects were saying, the way you get pure with God is you do this purity ceremony. You eat this sort of way. And Paul's saying, nothing you can do externally will ever make you pure from within, which is what matters most. That's bad teaching and it hurts people. Those of you who grew up with the idea of working your way towards a God who is pleased with you, you know the crushing weight of that. I mean, one of the things I do at my house that I don't think my wife likes a lot, which is a lot, but this is one of them, I always let the boys go outside. I say, have a mud day, boys. Turn on the hose and just go nuts. It's a great day for my boys. They love it. I love it. It is terrible for a house. There is mud everywhere, crud everywhere, clogs of mud up on our ceiling. Here's where it gets really bad. And just nothing fruitful comes of this. Lazy dad says, all right, guys, time's up. Clean yourselves up. Five, three, and two-year-old. In this pile of mud you've created. Nothing gets clean. And that's religion. It's you're a muddy, sinful mess. And then some religious teacher comes and tells you, clean yourself up, and all you have to work with is muddy, sinful things around you. Your actions and your deeds and your motives, everything about you is tainted, and you're gonna clean yourself up with the mud that got you in the situation you're in? That's burdensome. He says, nothing is pure from the outside. The way you get pure is, he says, defiled and unbelieving. The way purity goes from impure to pure in the Christian world is belief. Trust Jesus and you're pure. That's it. You know when my boys get clean? Daddy comes out there and hoses them down. Shh. Same way with the gospel. If you read the book of Revelation, all the imagery about Christians is something God has done to them. Those ones in heaven, they're the ones with the white robes that Jesus has placed on them. They're the ones with the new names that Jesus has given to them. Jesus has washed them and they've just trusted in it. That's the gospel. Religion says you are a muddy mess. Go in the mud and try to clean yourselves up. Religion says, or gospel says, Jesus will wash you clean. Just trust. Amen. That is good news. I forget where I'm at. It's dangerous. What are the elders supposed to do with these guys? How should the elders, the church in general, respond? We see two verbs here. Verse 11, the first one. These bad, hurtful teachers, they must be silenced. And then go down to verse 13. This testimony is true, speaking of the teachers. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound, healthy in their own faith. Silence and rebuke. Silence and rebuke. Let me tell you what rebuke sharply does not mean. I'll walk you through the Joshua history of arguments. Being rude. 
Just because you have a rude tone to you, that doesn't mean sharp. Sharp in this context is to the point. Opposite would be dull. You got to the point. You used sharp scissors and it precisely did what it was supposed to. Rude is just you're just trying to smash the person. Don't be rude. Don't be loud. I come from a loud family. I can get louder than anyone. Rebuke sharply does not mean speak loud. It means get to the point. Third one, be public. Not everything needs to be put on blast publicly for everyone. Each situation warrants a different response. Doesn't mean you need to put it public. We live in a goofy world where there is way too much on Facebook and social media. Most of that needs to be a private email or a love letter to your wife. I don't care how great of a husband you are on Facebook, right or no. <laughs> Lastly, be unloving. Doesn't mean that. It's all out of love. Jesus says, love even your enemy. So for sure, a false teacher would be in that category. Love even him. So here's how, just a few helpful things as I've been thinking through how I could do this better in my own life. You must understand to rebuke sharply, here's the first thing, the seriousness. How serious is the bad teaching for the person being affected? Does my mom need to get in the car and go to the playground and run over every kid that's bullying me in the third grade? No, that's not that serious. But a grown man doing grown man crimes in our house, that's dangerous. She needs to run him over. Here's how I thought about it early on in my faith, and I think it was unhelpful for me. There's good teachers and there's bad teachers. There's true teachers and there's false teachers. I think having just two buckets isn't helpful, at least for me. Because as soon as somebody doesn't line up perfectly with you, communion, baptism, whatever it is, you dump them over there. I think it's more a spectrum. There are healthy teachers, unhealthy teachers, dangerous and deadly teachers. It's a spectrum where they land. Know the seriousness of it so you know if you need to get in the car and run them over, if you just need to send them an email. Next one. The setting. Just what's the setting? Really think through it. Something posted on Facebook, think through the best response in a Facebook response. It's probably not you being the 78th comment on some thread full of a bunch of knuckleheads. Probably a private email. Your goal. What is your goal in all this? For me, for the first 10 years of my Christian life, I could look back and say my goal was probably just to win arguments. And I did. And I burned bridges. And a lot of my family members are like just a little more on edge around me. What's your goal? Paul, talking about these false teachers, even says, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in faith. Even for the false teachers, he wants repentance and restoration to God. What's your goal? Luke always asks the question, do you want to make a point or do you want to win the person? You can make points, especially if you're witty and on it. But do you want to win the person? Is this a long-term project, the relationship with you and this person? Think through that. Next one. The person. Here's where I think our culture is just so goofy. There are people in this room who are good old Republicans. God bless you. I'm not going to say where I landed. It doesn't even matter. But there are people that I love and adore who can't fathom Hillary Clinton have one single good thought or idea. 
Is that true? Is there really a woman who's been Secretary of State and done all this who does not have a single good idea or thought in her head? Or as a culture, have we created the straw man argument and perfected it to the point where we are just clueless in a social setting on how to debate and talk? Everything is so much more nuanced than we ever give credit for. Same, vice versa. If you think about whatever it is, the, the false teaching in your background, people are very complex individuals. And they attach to some of the teaching of that religion and they reject others and they grab onto some worldviews. You're talking to a person with reasons for why they believe what they believe, a lot of them good. You're not talking to a straw man argument, the worst possible assumptions you can make on that human being. Next one. And just understand you. If you're a newer Christian, this whole rebuke thing, you only have one volume and it's whatever your natural bend is. If you're kind of meek and mild, your rebuke's gonna be like, <laughs> if you're a big jerk and you just got saved, your rebuke's gonna be big and jerky. It's just how it is. You have one volume. You're either a big jerk or a jellyfish based off kind of how you function in life. I come from a loud Irish Catholic fighting family. I can fight. My wife comes from a family. We don't fight. Bunch of jellyfish. No backbones. I need to watch the jerk tendencies in me and move towards this. Jellyfish need to move away from being jellyfish and get a backbone and occasionally speak up when it's needed. So rebuke them sharply. You get to the point. You have the right goal. All this sort of thing. So here's where I want to jump now and spend 10 minutes or so. For this specific church, who are the dangerous influences we're going to be around? Here's what I want you thinking about. As we talk about each of these kind of sections, if you got someone that pops in your head, keep that person in your head and think through what this passage is saying to you in your area, in your context. My goal is to shake all of you just a little so we all walk out of here more dependent upon Jesus to bring love, truth, and grace into our lives. So here's where we're going to start. First one is this, Mormon teaching. Why would I pick this one? Because we all know Mormons. They're everywhere. This is their land. This is their real estate. So this teaching impacts our church. If you're a newer believer, know this. No Mormon teacher that holds to the Mormon teacher is ever going to get up here and be able to prophetically speak to any of you. We would put them on a panel discussion maybe to hear what they have to say, but they carry no authority. Why do I say that? If you're a newer Christian and you're kind of more in the tolerance camp and you want everyone to get along, that might kind of push you back a little. Here's why. That false teacher thing, the story, the salvation, the sin, the Savior, for a LDS foundation, all of those are different than what the Bible would say. The story of Mormonism is different than the story of the Bible. You say, well, they say Jesus, and yeah, they use the same characters, but they put them in a whole different plot. And they've emphasized different heroes than we emphasize. It's dangerous. On that spectrum, I would put it over here past whatever the, the line for 
never let that teaching influence you. They're there. That doesn't mean relationally don't be with them. Absolutely. That's why we're here. But it is dangerous teaching. And just those other ones, just a helpful thing that someone shared with me. Okay, put your, if maybe you have a Mormon background. Maybe you just know a lot of Mormon people. The Mormon faith is propped up by human works. The, the word they kind of use, I had the, the teenage missionary boys, they call themselves elder, last name, whatever. The word they kept using was worthy. Trying to be worthy. Meaning they're working towards a level to where God would say, you're worthy. That's a burden. You know what's helpful for them? Watching us knucklehead Christians actually be a little vulnerable and show that we don't have it all together. Rather than one-upping the Mormon mom in your neighborhood, come out in your disheveled, ugly pajamas, yelling at your kids, <laughs> yelling at your husband, and look at her and say, it's grace, baby. It's grace. You want this? This is yours. They don't have that. They've got a prop, 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 prop. Ladies, do it. It'll be fun. Here's the next one. This one's way more nuanced. Catholic teaching. Catholics are everywhere. I come from a Catholic family. Catholic influence is everywhere. It's Mormons, Catholics, Protestants, whatever else. How serious is the Catholic teaching to being unhealthy? I would never put them in the LDS camp. Because if you walk through the story, the sin, the salvation, the Savior, they get almost all of those right. Their story's the same. They've got a few hiccups with kind of a purgatory they throw in. But fundamentally, they're on the same page, mostly. Salvation, though, is where it gets tricky. And I see so many young people, especially, just rip into Catholics. And I say, well, what does it mean to be Catholic? I don't know. I just know you're supposed to rip into them. You shut up and get out of here. The Catholic faith as we know it started way back when, but really kind of became its own after our boy Martin Luther said, I'm out of here. He said, I want to do this justification by grace alone. And then the Catholic church was left kind of shaking their head and they said, okay, we got to really identify who we are. And they had this thing called the Council of Trent. And that's where the Catholic church really put its stake in the ground. This is who we are as a church. And most of it was good. Salvation was bad. Let me tell you what they say about salvation and how much your works or your good deeds play into it. This is one of the statements from that. This is Catholics kind of refuting us Protestants, telling us where we're off. If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that those said works are merely the fruits and signs of your justification that's been obtained, but not a cause of the increase, therefore, let that person be accursed or go to hell. That's a lot of kind of old school. What they said is, if anyone says the way you get right with God is just justification, all you did was in your lowest moment said, Jesus, I trust in you, and boom, you are 100% accepted by God in that moment. Let that person go to hell because that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's the Catholic teaching as they hold to it. That's unhealthy. Very unhealthy. It's not salvation is grace, plus works, kind of dancing together. Salvation by faith. You trust in Jesus and you're justified. The sanctification process is messy and muddled. And, but you get right with God, Catholics, by putting your trust in Jesus. 
the Council of Trent in this area was wrong. It's dangerous. Now, here's where the nuance just gets really important. No, go back. We'll get. Still talking about our Catholic friends. Like I said, most of my family is still Catholic. My mom, if you asked her, are you a Christian? She'd say, yes. When did you become a Christian? This day I put my trust in Jesus. Are you Catholic? Yes. Just a Catholic boy myself, it's hard to shake. Catholic Catholicism is such a cultural ingrained thing in who people are to get them to refute being who their culture has taught them to be their whole existence is not necessarily the end goal. It's put your trust in Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Are you a Catholic? Yes. What does that mean? I don't really know, but I just, I have a hard time, all this guilt. I can't say I'm not Catholic. <laughs> it's just too much. So we uh, play outside at our house a lot. We're on the front yard trying to build relationships with the neighbors. And a lot of kind of older gals always come by and talk. It's probably because there's mud everywhere and they, we look out of control. Like, we need to call CPS. I'm going to go check on this family across the street. They come by. Almost all of them have been the sweetest Catholic gals. And I've built a relationship with them. And I'm just trying to figure out where they are on the scale of figuring out the story. Now, there's a point where we start to talk about justification, where I must rebuke sharply and get to the point and say, you cannot get right with God with anything you bring to the table. But it's a nuanced, a gentle, out of love. All the, if you ask most Catholics, hey, tell me about the cancel trend. What? Is that a bowl game? No. It's what makes Catholics Catholics. Be individual. Be with people. Just get to know them. Ask questions. And rebuke when it, time comes. I'll get to the one you guys just saw in advance. Luke brought this guy up two weeks ago and said, talking about healthy Christians have knowledge of truth. If you don't have knowledge of truth, you're an airhead. And he said, those of you who watch 21, Channel 21, the religious channel, and have no discernment on what to turn off. And he mentioned this guy. He is the sweetest, most smiling, good-looking Texas boy. Why do we bring him up? I say they're prosperity teaching. I'll say he's the figurehead of that sort of teaching. And let me just read you the last couple books our boy here has written. I declare, promises to speak over your life. You can, you will. Become a better you. It's your time. Your best life now. Every day, a Friday. How to be happier seven days a week. Now, some of you read those books. What's the, what's the emphasis in those? You, your, you, your, you, your, you, your, you, your. So where is Osteen on this spectrum? I think he's dangerous. I think he very well may be a Christian man who has just truncated his teaching to this little subplot in the grand story of God, and he camps out there. But he's been on news anchors where they've asked him about sin, and he's talked about sin. But he camps out on this whole prosperity, best life now. Why is this dangerous? It's a seriousness. seriousness. So I have a dear family member who got sick, terminal illness. I've probably shared this story a few times. She got really into kind of prosperity teaching in Channel 21. She'd give and she'd try to go to these crusades and try to get fixed. 
Because those guys say, if you put your faith, God will, because he wants your best life now. She trusted and she trusted and she gave and she trusted and she died with her son watching, left to make sense of, okay, what is this God thing? I thought he was supposed, life was supposed to be great right now. That's what I've been watching. My mom poured herself out for these people and she's dead. It's dangerous. It puts way too much emphasis on what God's supposed to do here and now for us. And here's the other thing, the more subtle thing. It puts so much emphasis on your faith that you bring into the equation. All his books, believe more, trust more, speak louder to yourself. Just all you beat down ladies in the room. How much more believing in Jesus can you muster through your disheveled day? Hardly any. Those of you battling like serious stuff. Like how much can you wrap your head around trusting more? You got this much faith. And Osteen's saying, more faith, more faith. It's dependent on you, more faith. That's dangerous, that crushes people. Jesus says, if you had a mustard seed, you'd move a mountain. Which means if you had a speck off of a mustard seed, you could move railroad tracks potentially. Meaning it's not how much faith you bring into the equation. You could have the tiniest, all I have is God is good. That's all I have. And I cry saying it. That's all I have though. Osteen would say, speak more, say more, trust more. And it smashes you, it's dangerous. It's unhealthy. It's not the gospel. The gospel is not about us and our ability to think our way to a better life. It's about God giving us good and bad and through it all say, God, you're good. You may die, you may never have children. God is good. So take a little pause here. Now I want to talk to mature Christians, whatever that means. Raise your hand for your mission. Just kidding. <laughs> Wife's like, put your hand down, idiot. <laughs> I just watched a very interesting TED Talk. And the guy made the point that we live in this biased world where everything's filtered. Google searches even. And he said, everything you go to, especially with technology, is filtered towards your general liking already. And he had a little experiment. He had his, had his friend Google Middle East stuff, who lived in the Middle East, was a Middle Eastern guy. He had his Arkansas friend Google Middle East. Returns, far different. The guy in Arkansas and this white Republican scared of the Middle East thing. Terrible, ISIS everywhere, don't ever go there. Brutal, scary. Guy over here came back, farmer's market Thursday, come get some beets. Come enjoy some bread pudding with our friends. His point was, everything is being filtered towards what you already want to be true anyways. That's dangerous. That's scary. Scary. So what I want to do now is just talk about the natural flow of life and the teaching we're receiving and the things that we would never really pick up as dangerous, but I think are more dangerous than we realize because we live in a world that's so saturated in this. So the first one, you guys probably won't disagree, is this. <coughs> Consumerism. Buy more, buy more, buy more, buy more, buy more, buy more, buy more. It's everywhere. All your kids need a phone at 12. Now they need a phone in kindergarten. Well, in case of emergency. What emergency has ever happened? Your six-year-old under a kindergarten teacher's care. More, 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 more. I was with this teacher the other day and he said, you know, 
whenever in my house, I'm around people in my general kind of financial realm, I'm always just a little bit embarrassed about my stuff. My forks don't match or it's just that kind of feeling. He said, but when I'm around people who are poor, usually significantly poor, I'm always embarrassed by my wealth. So I'll just ask you, when's the last time you had somebody significantly more poor and less well off than you in your house? For you to kind of not prop everything up in your house to match whatever this culture is trying to keep up with. But you had just somebody poor who thinks you live in a mansion in your three bedroom, two bath, power ranch, stucco, the same house that's three doors down. Consumerism, it is pounding on us, pounding on us, pounding on us. Last one. I know, I'm going to get emails. The Duke has just been called out. (laughs) John Wayne. How dare this kid? Here's what I mean. Americans are individual, freedom-loving, go-getter, hard workers. And we care about ourselves. And then if we're lucky, we get married and we care about our wives or our husbands. And then we include some kids and now that's who we care about. If we're lucky, we get grandkids. But that, that's what we think through. That's the filter we think through. We're so individualist. And here's how I've seen it in our church. If you get baptized or sign up to serve in like a significant way, we usually give you a survey. And one of the questions is, describe the, write the gospel in your own words. And almost every time, it's, God is good. I got to a point where I saw my sin, I repented, I trusted in Jesus, and now I'm saved. Is that wrong? No. But here's, here's, here's just an observation. If you were to put the Bible and your description of the gospel next to each other, how much of the Bible is unnecessary for how you see the good news that God's given this world? Genesis, you never even bring up a good creation. Israel is never even mentioned, so you can rip out unnecessary. Even Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where the kingdom of God and all this kind of big cosmic stuff is talked about. You don't really need those. You need John 3.16 because you believed in something, so keep that. And then you need kind of Romans because you got to have the Romans road and maybe a little Galatians. And your Bible's now this big. And I say that kind of joking, but we have reduced the gospel to me and God in heaven one day. It is a cosmic thing. It's for everyone. Started before time began and it's going on forever in eternity. And every tribe, tongue, nation will confess that he is God. So what's the best way? The best way to find counterfeits in bad teaching? Know the real gospel. Dive into it. Jump into it. If you are Catholic, jump into the grace offered in salvation. If you're a truncated American, jump into the grand story that God is writing that includes everywhere and everyone. Get your gospel as big as God has allowed it to be. It's huge and it's deep and it's wonderful. And it's for us right here in this church. We've got to protect it. Let's pray.